All right, happy Lord's Day to you. It's very good to see you today. Just want to say before I begin uh, that I love Jesus Christ, I love the Word of God, and I love you. And so this is a really wonderful combination for me to be able to speak about Jesus Christ from the Word of God to you, the people that I love. Uh, let me explain what's going to happen today. Uh, this is a Bible. Uh, this Bible is divided into two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament has 27 books. One of those books is the book that we call Hebrews. And what we've been doing at North Shore Baptist Church is we have been studying or working our way through the book of Hebrews chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We are now in chapter 13, which is the last chapter, so we're almost done. So what's going to happen today is I'm going to read two verses from Hebrews chapter 13, then I'm going to do the best that I can to explain those verses. And while I'm explaining those verses, I, I would like to, to give you certain points of application, and hopefully the Word of God will change us so that we will love Jesus Christ and become more like Jesus Christ. So the two verses we're going to look at are Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. I would ask, please, that you would turn in your Bible to that passage that you would stand, please, and listen as I read these verses. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, hear the word of the Lord. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me? Our Father in heaven, this is a great encouragement to us. Uh, Lord, we need you. We confess that we need you. And Lord, we also confess that we need you more than we realize we need you. Uh, you are our helper. Lord, our tendency is to help ourselves or to look to others for help but Lord, we want to confess this morning, Lord, not only with our lips, but sincerely with our hearts that the Lord is my helper. In order for this to happen, Lord, it, it is going to take the unusual work of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, to expose our need, and then direct us in an unobstructed way to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you could get us to Christ today by your word, through your spirit, through the proclamation of your word. Lord, I want to confess that I need you today. I need you, Lord, and I pray, God, that I would not rely upon my familiarity with the text. I pray, Lord, that I would not rely upon my understanding of the text. I, I pray even, Lord, that I would not rely upon the notes that I have jotted down in this, in this notebook. But Lord, I pray that I would lean heavily upon you and that you would be my helper. Lord, for each of the people today, Lord, they need your help. Lord, they need your help to understand. They need your help to be interested in this. Lord, they need your help to apply this. Lord, they need your help to change. And so, would you, Lord, please help the people today as the Word of God is explained uh, to love what is being said and then, Lord, to act upon it by grace. Uh, and may it all be done 
in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, and may our direction and our focus be upon your blessed Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Point of the Bible is Jesus. Point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism, and the point of Hebrews chapter 13 is that we are to be doers of the word, that faith without works is dead. Let me start off today by showing you a couple of pictures. First of all, you need to know that I am a tulip farmer, and I take great pride in my work. Uh, these pictures come from 2021. Please notice this uh, fake ADT sign right here. Uh, you could break into my house anytime you want to. There's no alarm. In fact, the door's not even locked. But that's just for reference. These are some tulips that I grew in 2021. Here's another angle of uh, the tulips that I grew last year. I mean, I just look at that and I say, that is, that's really good work. That is, that is really good work. I thought you would enjoy looking at those this morning. I graduated from the University of Georgia in June of 1984, and two days after I graduated, I went to work at a church in suburban Atlanta known as Peachtree Corners Baptist Church. I was initially hired as their summer youth director, and after being there for a few weeks, they decided that they needed a permanent youth director, and so I was hired for $16,000 a year um, to be their youth director, and I was very content. I wanted for nothing. In December of 1984, after being there for about half a year, the budget for 1985 was set forth by the trustees and finance committee of that church, and there was a business meeting upon which the budget for the upcoming year would be voted upon. Uh, the pastors, the pastoral staff, uh, they were not allowed to be in the meeting when the money for the next year was discussed. But when the meeting ended, uh, I was told that every single one of the raises went through, and I asked if I could see a copy of the budget. And when I looked at it, I discovered that I was the only staff member who did not get a raise. I left the church that evening. It was a Wednesday night. I left very quickly and quietly, but inwardly I was very angry. I was envious and I was feeling very disrespected. That evening, Anna and I were driving from Peachtree Corners Baptist Church about an hour and a half north to her parents' house up in Rome, Georgia, and we were in two separate cars because I had to return to work the next day. And I recall very vividly driving down Peachtree Industrial Boulevard towards I-285, feeling very sorry for myself because I was bypassed for a raise. Um, I was not free from the love of money. I was covetous. I was not content. The last of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, is thou shalt not covet. Listen to how A.W. Pink defines covetousness. He says it is being dissatisfied with our present lot and portion. It is a lusting after what God has forbidden or withheld from us. Last night I had the privilege of sitting in on the Davis family devotions and they were studying the book of 1 Timothy and they were speaking about 
unhealthy cravings. I, I think that's a good definition of covetousness. Thou shalt not covet. Now, please, as we understand this sin, we need to look at the fact that it is a very slippery sin. Let me illustrate that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that he knew a prominent Christian man, a man that was very, very well trusted. People would often come to this man and confide in this man and confess their sins to this man. And not like he was a priest, but he was a 19th century equivalent of a biblical counselor. And this man told Spurgeon, he said, I've had all kinds of horrible sins confessed to me. Never once has anyone ever confessed to being covetous. Now that should not be surprising. Because if you think about your own personal confession to the Lord in recent prayers which you have made, maybe you have confessed to the Lord. And by the way, I hope that you do pray to the Lord, and I hope that when you do pray to the Lord, you confess your sins to the Lord. But think about the sins that you have recently confessed to the Lord. Maybe lying or stealing or lust or temper or laziness or pride or cursing or cruel speech or unbelief or a lack of love or selfish ambition or something like that. All of these maybe are on your list of sins which you have confessed to the Lord. But think about it. When was the last time that you, in your time alone before the Lord, were broken in your heart by the Holy Spirit and you confessed privately to God, I am a covetous person? Or think about this. When is the last time that you were in a public prayer meeting And as requests were being called for, did you ever hear anyone raise their hand and say, please pray for me. I am discontent with what I have. Uh, I desire more. In fact, I desire what this person sitting over here has. I want more. I want a lot more. So please pray for me. I've been attending prayer meetings for 60 years. I have never heard anyone make a request like that. And I've never come true to making a request like that. Not that I didn't need to. I just never have heard it uttered. Covetousness is talked about and thought about and prayed about very little. And I think part of the reason for this is perhaps because we are so shamed to admit it. We'll own up to other sins, but owning up to wanting what someone else has, that's something we are not quick to admit. Or maybe we don't talk much about covetousness because we don't even perceive it in ourselves. Like like we can perhaps see it in other people, but we do not know that we ourselves are covetous. Or maybe part of the reason why we don't talk about it too much is because we really don't see it as being that wrong. Maybe a combination of those, I don't know. But whatever the reason, will you please admit, along with me, that this is a sin which we talk little and pray little and think little and do little about? Yet it's a very important sin to concentrate on because the Apostle Paul said that he would not have known what sin was unless the law said, thou shalt not covet. The author of Hebrews wants his audience to give this some attention. And so the command comes as the fifth and final in a string of rapid-fire commands at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 13. Thus far, he has briefly addressed 
love and hospitality and prison ministry and sanctity and marriage. And now the fifth and final one is covetousness, or if you would like me to take a positive approach, contentment. But covetousness and contentment, they're the same coin, it's just opposite sides. Well, today what I want to do is to work our way through the text using this very simple four-point outline. Point number one, rid. Point number two, rest. Point number three, remember. Point number four, recite. Are you ready? Here we go. Point number one, get rid of. Verse five, get rid of. Keep your life free from the love of money. You know, we're only now into the fifth verse in chapter 13, and three times already the author has used the word love. In verse one, he talks about Philadelphia, brotherly love. In verse 2, the word hospitality literally is translated a love for strangers. And now as we look at this word covet, um, it, 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 it quite literally means, if you take it apart in the Greek, it means a lover of silver. And then you put an A in front of it, and it negates it, and it turns it into an imperative, which quite literally says do not be a lover of silver or do not be a lover of money. Uh, all that to say that the author is intentionally using love as an instructive theme as he works his way through the beginning of what we call chapter 13. And the metaphor is that of enslavement or entrapment. Um, you do not want to get caught in the trap of covetousness. That, that, that's what it's saying. Paul has this same metaphor in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, when he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. There's that whole idea of entrapment, enslavement, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I think maybe one of the reasons why fish for thousands of years, keep biting the worm is because they really do not view the worm as a trap. They do not view the worm as danger. They do not pass any information on to future generations. And so I think it's probably safe to say that 10,000 years from now, fish will still be biting hooks disguised as worms. The fish community does not view the worm community as a threat. So... I guess it could be said that fish don't learn anything at school. See, the reason I said that is is because fish swim in in a a group of fish is school. Fish don't learn anything at school. That's amazing, but it's not sad. And the reason it's not sad is because fish do not have souls that will live forever. And it is not sad because we get to eat the fish, and so may they remain forever oblivious. But what's more amazing than fish ignorance is that we, as rational human beings who are image bearers of God and who do have the capacity to pass information down from one generation to another willingly allow ourselves and our children to become enslaved and entrapped and caught up and incarcerated and ensnared by the love of money. 
The text says, keep yourself free. Implied in that is that there is a danger of bondage. And by nature, just like fish, we don't fear that bondage. Furthermore, we are not bothered by the bondage that covetousness brings. So, in other words, we don't even fear the bondage, and even when we are caught in it, we are not bothered by the fact that we are caught in it. Let's consider lions in the zoo. You go to the zoo, you walk past the lions, and what are they doing? Well, they will walk out into the sun, and they will take a nap. They will eat, and they will walk around gingerly, Uh, every once in a while they might look at you, but they're not panicking. They are seemingly content to be in captivity. Likewise, the greedy person by nature has no desire to not be greedy. Not only do they want more, but they want to want more. And, And society applauds those who have big appetites and those who have strong cravings. And so they want more, and they want to want more, and there are people that tell them it's really good for you to want to want more. And all the while, they are not content. They are miserable. They have a lot of problems, and their children are going to be just like they are. You see, it is a big problem, but it is not often addressed. In the estimation of the greedy person, greed is not one of their problems. And so let's talk about advertising for a moment. Advertising works off of the premise uh, that you are greedy. And it is not a vice, it is not a deficiency. And it's certainly not a trap, and it is not a snare, and you're not going to be hurt by it. In fact, it is just normal to want more than you have. Let's be honest. I mean, I, I like to go to the zoo, but if you think about what is actually going on there, it's not normal for lions to be in a zoo, but the lions are there, think that it's normal. Greedy people are, are not actively trying to be less greedy. They're in bondage, like lions in the zoo, and they do not even know that they are in bondage. And the author of Hebrews says, danger, danger. Jesus says, danger. Remember, Jesus said that the sower went out to sow, and there are four types of soil. In the third soil, the seed falls. It is the seed which falls among the thorns. And those thorns or weeds around the seeds are going to choke or strangle the actual crop. Remember what Jesus says as he relates it to the spiritual realm. Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke, C-H-O-K-E, choke, strangle the word, and it proves unfruitful. All right, let's move from 2021 to 2022, and let me give you a photograph of my tulips as they are now. I would like to teach you both some agrarian techniques, and I would like to translate it into items which will benefit your sanctification. Here is what my tulips look like as of yesterday. Let's take a look at another one. 
There's that fake ADT sign. Here are some tulips which are trying to come up, but you notice that there is competition. That's the grass that is in there. Here's what I did. In November, I said to myself, I want to help my tulips. I want to keep them warm for the winter. And so I went to Garden World and I bought a bag of ryegrass. Ryegrass is just a weed. It grows all winter long and it grows strong in cold weather. So I threw ryegrass seed down on where my tulips were trying to come up. I went in among them yesterday and I realized that there are fewer of them and they are coming up slower and they are not coming up as vigorously. Why? Because they are being choked and I am the one that choked them. Two things that I've learned from this. Number one, pride goes before a fall. (laughs) What I will normally do with a good harvest of tulips is I will stand in my front living room and I will wait for a pedestrian to walk by and then I will think of an excuse to walk outside like I'm taking my garbage out and, and, and wait for them to say, oh, nice, nice flowers. <laughs> well, yeah. So I'm, I'm, always, I'm always talking about it. I'm always fishing for it. Pride goes before a fall. The second thing that I learned is that you can actually be doing something to try to help or that you think is helping and it will be strangling or hurting. We view money and the accumulation of money and the love of money, the acquisition of money, as something that is actually going to help us. Jesus said, beware, because what it will actually do is it will choke and it will strangle. Just like the tulips are being strangled by the ryegrass, money is something and the love of money is something which can strangle our spiritual vitality. The author says, danger, worm and hook ahead. Do not bite. Keep yourself free. Rid yourself from this trap. Which begs the question, why is this so dangerous? And and what is really wrong with it? And why is it so evil? And why is it to be feared and shunned? Why should I get rid of the love of money in my heart? Well, for starters, because God commands it. And that should be enough right there. You see, ours is a reasonable faith, but reason is not required in order for us to trust and obey. If the natural inclination of our heart is to accumulate more, and we think that more is better, why would we listen to God when God says, keep yourself free from the love of money? Well, we don't have to understand that in order to obey that. If you know the Lord himself, then you know that whatever he says is right, and therefore he says, thou shalt not covet. When he says it, that is right and good. It may not seem dangerous to you, but it is. The reason that it is is because God says that it is. The second thing that I would like to point out as to why this is such a horrible sin and that we should be alert to this snare, perhaps more importantly, is because God hates it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, murder, crucify. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists the things which are earthly in them. And what are they? Sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is 
idolatry. Hang on to that thought and please note that it does not say that covetousness is like unto or similar to idolatry. It is apples to apples. Covetousness is idolatry. And then he goes on to say, what is the, what is, what is all of this going to yield in verse six? On account of these things, included in that is covetousness. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So it's very serious. God hates it. Why does God hate it? Two thoughts. Well, first of all, because covetousness is idolatry. It is a form of worship. Uh, idolatry is the worship of a false god. Uh, you cannot serve God or worship God and mammon or money. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, just keep the commandments. The guy says, well, we've got that taken care of. Jesus says, all right, very well. Take what you have, sell it, give it to the poor. The guy then went away sad. And the reason why he went away sad is because he betrayed the fact that he was not a keeper of the commandments. He was incapable of keeping the commandments, and he was a violator of the very first commandment, and that is, thou shalt have no other God before me, and his God was money. And he went away sad. Covetousness is idolatry because it is the worship of a false god. And it is worship. You take someone who really loves money and someone who knows how to get it, it is worship. It is devotion and adoration and total commitment. And it involves planning and working and, and perhaps even stealing and, and striving and saving and hoarding and, and sacrificing and investing. These people are very happy when they look at the television screen and the green arrow is going up and their emotions correspondingly are bleak and downcast when there is a red arrow and it is going down. They are worshiping. Covetousness is idolatry and God hates it. And so the Bible says, rid yourself of it. It's the worship of a false God. But there is a second reason why God hates covetousness I believe it is because he himself is so generous. I mean, think about people. And let's even take unsaved people, for example. You do know that there are unsaved people who are generous and benevolent and giving. You, you, you know that. Well, what I know about benevolent people, even if they are sinful and unsaved, fallen, and maybe even selfish themselves, evil. Uh, they are evil. But they do not like stingy, tight-fisted, greedy people. People who are generous do not like stingy people. I don't like stingy people. How much more would a kind, loving God who gives us life and breath freely and all things richly to enjoy how much more would he be repulsed and resistant to an image-bearer of himself who does not share? Parents, how put off are you by your children when they will not share with their siblings? What does a God who gave his only begotten th son think of misers and hoarders and gluttons and money addicts? Now, we are to be alert, and be aware, and be on guard. There is a... A, a dangerous worm that is floating above our heads. 
You bite it, not only are you going to be introduced to Mr. Hook, but more importantly, you are going to be introduced to the displeasure of an almighty God. His wrath is coming upon the sons of men because of these things. Please also consider, there's another reason why it is such a horrible sin. And that is, this is amazing statistically, that there are a grand total of zero greedy people in the Bible who had a happy ending. Wouldn't you think with 1,189 chapters in the Bible, there would be at least one greedy person who things turned out well for? But you read the Bible beginning to end, you're going to see nothing but sorrow and misery. Please don't ever forget 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, which recounts the deeds of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the gain from wrongdoing. And he is classified as a false prophet. Don't you ever forget Achan, who was told when you go into Jericho, don't you dare take a thing. But then he was trapped by the love of money. And in Joshua 7, 21, he said, I coveted them and took them and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And, and, and what happened to him? Well, he and his family were stoned to death. Everybody must get stoned. Bob Dylan, 1966. And don't ever forget Ahab, who violently exercised eminent domain over Naboth's vineyard, and then, as a result of that, caught a random arrow in the chest, and the dogs in the chariot licked up his blood. Don't ever forget Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, who extorted money from Naaman, the Syrian general. And as a result, Gehazi himself was a leper for life. Don't ever forget the pride and the greed of Ananias and Sapphira, who were trapped by this sin. They lied to God, the Holy Spirit. And although they were in perfect health, they dropped dead in front of Peter and were buried three hours away from one another. And please don't forget about Judas who sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver and he has eternally gone to his place of torment. Don't ever forget any of those people and more importantly, don't for one skinny minute think that you are better than any of them are. In 1984, when I looked at the 1985 personnel budget of Peachtree Corners Baptist Church and it read, Ed Moore, Youth director, $16,000. I was Balaam and Achan and Ahab and Gehazi and Ananias and Sapphira and Judas rolled into one. See, greed is subtle. It's deceptive. It is addictive. It sadly is socially acceptable. It is sadly encouraged. It is common. It is ugly. It is destructive. It is idolatrous. And God hates it and it doesn't work out well for you. Therefore, do whatever you can to rid yourself from it. Side note, you don't have to be rich or even have great earning potential in order to be ensnared by this sin. Let's remember who the original audience of the book of Hebrews was. First people who read this book were Christians who were ostracized, who were living in Rome, they were poor, they were outcast people who had already had their goods plundered 
and persecution was about to heat up under Nero. It was about to get worse. You don't have to be rich in order to be greedy. Whether you're rich or poor or part of the middle class, whether you're a millionaire or you have walked in here today as a homeless person, everybody is susceptible to the sin of covetousness because it originates in the heart and it does not discriminate based upon a tax bracket. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says that the love of money is the root, R-O-O-T, root of all kinds of evil. Some of the greediest people that I've ever known are poor people. The reason that I emphasize the word root is, yes, there are there is fruit that grows from greediness, the love of money, but it is definitely hidden underneath. It is a root sin, and from this root spring all kinds of evil. Therefore, rid yourself of it. Point number one, rid. Point number two, rest. Rest in what God has chosen to give you. Hebrews 13.5b says, and be content with what you have. Now, let me explain what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that you have to keep the job that you have now for the rest of your life. Someone comes to a Christian counselor and says, I'm really miserable in my job, and they point them to this text and say, be content with what you have. That's not what it means. It is okay to look for another job. It also doesn't mean that you can't go back to school and try to improve yourself so that you are qualified to make more money. You can do that. It doesn't mean that you have to turn down overtime. Uh, sometimes the best thing that you can do for your family is to rejoice in the fact that you have been given overtime. And it doesn't mean that you have to stay in the apartment that you're in and that you cannot buy a house. The commandment to be content is not an enemy of ambition and advancement. The Bible says that a righteous man will leave an inheritance to his children's children. The Bible says it is the Lord that gives you the power to accumulate wealth. There are plenty of rich people in the Bible. I think it is quite possible to work overtime so as to save up for a down payment for a house and still at the same time be content. You see, contentment is a state of the heart. It is not a dollar amount. And we learn from the Apostle Paul that this whole idea of contentment is something which is learned, and it comes over time. It doesn't come naturally, and it doesn't come immediately. It is something which he had to learn. Consider what he said back in Philippians chapter 4, Verses 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, L-E-A-R-N-E-D, I have learned, means that he didn't know it immediately, but he had to acquire this information through life, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? To be content, to rest. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Let's just stop right there. We always talk about how hard the Apostle Paul had it. Beaten, shipwrecked, so forth and so on. But did you know that there were other times when things were going well for the Apostle Paul and he had everything that he needed? And he had to learn how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned, L-E-A-R-N-E-D, I have learned the secret 
of facing plenty and hunger abundance, he learned the secret of having abundance and need. Oh, Paul, please share it with us. What is that secret? Here it is, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is the secret. That is the secret. Could you please explain that to us, Pastor? Yes. Let's look at it from the empty side first. If someone does not have the Lord Jesus Christ, if they are not born again, if they've not been joined to Christ, if they've not been adopted by God the Father, if if they don't understand and believe the gospel, then the most logical thing that they can do is to covet. They need to get everything that they can get this time around because they only have this time around. According to their worldview, this is the only time around. This week, Anna and I were taking an Uber. Our driver, wonderful gentleman, was a Muslim man from Brooklyn, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and I asked him the question, what is going to happen to you when you die? And as we were driving down the highway, he pointed over to a tree, and he said, just like that tree, one day is going to die, and then it will be nothing, so too I will die, and I will be nothing. So for him... He has no big picture. He has no ultimate purpose. He has no afterlife. That doesn't factor in at all. It makes perfect sense for him to get what he can get in the here and now because there is nothing other than the here and now. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if the dead are not raised, and he is speaking here about Jesus Christ coming back from the dead, and he's speaking about our eternal destiny, us on the final day being raised, if dead people don't come back to life, if they just go into the ground and that's it, well, Paul says, then by all means, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It makes perfect sense for a person to be covetous if this is all that there is. Greed and covetous make perfect sense in a world without Christ. But we have Christ. We have the reality of Christ and everything that goes with it. And that includes looking at him and how selfless he was and how he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and looking at how he gave his time to serve other people and how he gave his life and his blood so that we should be saved. We look at him and we ought to walk as he walked. All that Christ is, that's what we ought to follow. And in light of not only what he is as a person or who he is as a person, but in light of everything that he has done, for us in that he died for our sins and he has given us eternal life and all that he is going to do. He is going to glorify us in light of the entire Jesus package. Then contentment is not only understandable, but it is achievable. It's not only achievable, but it's logical. It's not only logical, but it is to be expected. It is to be expected from those who are in Christ. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Once again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
our word, rest. We will rest because that is enough. Allow me to suggest two Christ-centered thought patterns, and this is our application for today, two Christ-centered thought patterns which will foster contentment. You see, we are commanded to be content, but how do we become content? Let me give you two Christ-centered thought patterns. First one is thankfulness. We are prone to covetousness when we shrink from thankfulness. And instead of thinking about and concentrating on everything that Christ has given us, we concentrate on what we don't have and what we crave yet to get. Whereas if we simply sat down with a pen and paper, and I don't mean with your thumbs and a phone, but I mean a pen and a paper, and you actually take the time to jot down what we have from God, blessings both physical and spiritual, I think we would be overwhelmed with the amount of extravagant wealth in our estate. And by the way, I don't know who you are, but there's one person in this room who is the poorest person in the room. There's the wealthiest person in the room, not sure who you are. There's the poorest person in the room. I want to speak for just a moment to the poorest person in the room. As poor as you may be, are you aware of the fact that of all of the human beings that have ever lived since Adam until now, you are in the vast majority of the richest people who have ever lived. A person living in 21st century America in New York City is ridiculously wealthy compared to the vast majority of people who ever lived. So even if comparatively speaking to the other people in the room, you don't have that much, you are still comparatively rich compared to the rest of the people of the world. And let me repeat what I said earlier, and I will actually read it word from word in my little notebook here. I think that we would be overwhelmed with the extravagant wealth of our estate if we were to just sit for a moment and contemplate how much we really have. So a few years ago, I went through biblical counseling with, uh, with Mike Moultrie. Um, I was having at the time a sinful pattern in my life of pride in the form of competitiveness, and uh, I really needed his help, and he did help me. One of the ways that he helped me is he sat down with me one day, and off of the top of his head, he rattled off 14 blessings that I, Ed Moore, enjoy. Things which I had not thought about, things which I had taken for granted. And then he said to me, you really don't have a good reason to complain or be upset because you really are a very blessed man. And he was right. But I needed to hear it. And you need to hear it. And I do not think that we think about it enough. And if we were to think about it more, we would realize how much we have. And if we thought about those things and then turned that into thankfulness, we would be more content. So sit right down and write yourself a letter and spell out everything that the Lord has done for you. Count your blessings and name them one by one, and it really, truthfully, will surprise you what the Lord has done. You see, greedy people are not thankful people. Greedy people are not content people. You have a lot, but you actually have a lot more than you think you have. 
And even if in the here and now you have less than other people do, that is not an excuse for a lack of contentment because if you are saved, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, you have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So thankfulness is one contentment booster, but here's an even bigger contentment booster, and that is the gospel. The gospel, which I am preaching right now, the gospel which says that we are sinners and, and, and that we are deserving of hell, but that God loved us and he did something about our sin and he sent Jesus to come to earth through the womb of the virgin, to live perfectly, to die in our place, to take away our sins, to be raised on the third day. And, and then the Holy Spirit convinces us of these truths and we embrace these truths and we are joined to Christ and we are saved and our sins are forgiven. The gospel is a contentment booster because by definition, a gospel understanding makes us aware of the fact that we deserve hell. And anything, I mean absolutely anything we get other than eternal damnation is not only a bonus, but it is a for sure cure for discontentment. If we really, truthfully, deep down believed, and here's the problem, I don't think that we really believe this, but if we really believed and felt deep in our soul the desperation of eternal damnation and that we were, by nature, children of wrath just like the others, if we really believed this, then I believe that we would be more content realizing that we will not get that. We would be in a perpetual state of contentment when we think about Jesus and his death upon the cross and what that means to us and saving us and taking away our sins, presenting us faultless before the throne of God above, the gospel is of first importance. And the gospel objectively gives us the promise of eternal contentment and joy, but that same gospel in the here and now makes us subjectively content when we really meditate upon it. I want to read you a quote but you see, Beldon, it is a lengthy quote. It has some archaic language to it. It was written by A.W. Pink. He, the, the man died in 1952, so the way he words things is going to be a little bit different than the way that we word things. It will be worth your while to concentrate on this quote about contentment as it relates to the gospel and us really not being deserving of anything but hell. I might interrupt Mr. Pink at times to explain, but I'm not going to try to paraphrase what he said because he says it so much better than I ever could. Listen to A.W. Pink. A deep and fixed sense of our utter unworthiness must do much to, our, to still our repinings when we are tempted to complain of the absence of those things our hearts coveted. If we live under an habitual sense of our unworthiness, it will greatly reconcile us to deprivations. If we daily remind ourselves that we have forfeited all good and deserve all ill at the hands of God, then we shall heartily acknowledge it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Nothing will more quickly compose the mind 
in the face of adversity, and nothing will so prevent the heart being puffed up by prosperity than the realization that I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies of God. So, we really preserve a sense of our unworthiness. And as we do, we will meekly submit to the allotments of divine providence. Hang on to this last thought. It's going to be really hard to understand as Pink words it, but it is worth getting. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, verse 10. Then why complain if God withholds from us what he grants to others. In other words, you deserve to go to hell. You're not going to be going there. Why in the world would you ever complain? Because God actually is going to send some people there, and you are not one of them. End quote. Last summer, I was going through a very difficult time emotionally, a very low period in my life. The reason that I was going through it is I was reflecting upon what a poor job I had done as a father while my children were growing up. I was feeling a deep sense of regret, sadness, and I was sharing my woes with Brian Kill, and I was telling him essentially why I perceived myself to be the worst father who ever lived sat there, didn't say a word. He patiently listened to my tales of misery. Then on August 27th, he sent me the following text that put everything into perspective. Here's what Elder Kill wrote. Maybe it's because I don't understand your pain. But if I can go to the grave knowing all five of my kids were saved. He has five children. He is speaking of himself. He says, if I can go to the grave, knowing that all five of my kids were saved, despite me, I'll gladly take the title of being the world's worst father, end quote. You know what that is? That's Korean for shut up. (laughs) Just, Just shut up. Pastor Ed, you have four kids, and all of them are saved. Just shut up. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, stop beating yourself up. You're not the world's worst worst father. That's irrelevant. What is in perspective here, which brings about contentment, is that the gospel brings us, by definition, into a state of contentment. If you have it and you meditate upon it, it means that there is no valid excuse for discontentment. So point number one, rid yourself of greed. Point number two, rest in what God has given you. And point number three, remember what he has promised. Hebrews 13:5c. for he, the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a quote from Joshua 1.5. Joshua is on the banks of the Jordan River. He is about to cross over into Canaan land and lead a military conquest. God speaks to Joshua, and he says in Joshua 1.5, 
No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with, W-I-T-H, with Moses, so I will be with, W-I-T-H, with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua's got two million people to lead on a military conquest into Canaan. And what is God's promise to him? Victory? Well, yes, sort of, but not really at the heart. The promise is not what is going to happen, but the promise is who is going to be with him. Himself. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The context of Joshua chapter 1 is a battle. The context of Hebrews chapter 13 is financial provision. The context of Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus is giving the great commission about evangelization and world missions, is that we need to get the word out there. And in all three cases, the common denominator is what? Lo, I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not a promise of wealth. I mean, my goodness, Jesus himself was poor. He had nowhere to lay his head. It is the promise of his presence. And circumstances may be bleak. That's a certainty if you keep buying gasoline. But remember, it's not what God will do. That's going to vary from person to person. Some people are going to get rich. Some people are going to be poor. Some people are going to get sick. Some people are going to be healed. What doesn't vary from person to person is his promise that whatever it is that he's going to do, he himself will be with us. The economy was horrible in the days of Jeremiah when he wrote the book of Lamentations. The temple had been raised. The the, the wall had been torn down. The city had been depleted of all of its people. And he's looking around and he's, he's, he's seeing what he sees. And it is in this moment of complete economic breakdown and devastation that he remembers that God is with him. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And then in verse 24, he gives the knockout punch. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. I am talking to myself, and as I am talking to myself, I say this to myself. Circumstances stink, but it doesn't matter. Why? Because the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. Paul gets to the end of his life, and he's writing to young Timothy, and he says something very discouraging in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He says, all deserted me. Man, at my first defense, everybody bailed on me. But then he says something powerful in verse 17. 2 Timothy 4, 17, the Lord himself stood by me and strengthened me. Once again, the people to whom the book of Hebrews was originally written were not going to have a financial rebound. If they lived, they were going to be poor. Circumstances were going to get worse, yet they were commanded to flee covetousness, to be content. Why? One reason. Because Jesus promised to be with them. I love to remember the hymns that 
we used to sing at my little Christian Missionary Alliance church in Dubois, Pennsylvania when I was growing up. It was a hymn that helped me a lot. I, I would sing it to myself as I was going through life. And, and it's kind of got a little bit of a hokey melody and maybe just a little bit of a hokey message, but it is so profound. It's a hymn that was written by a man by the name of C. Austin Miles in the year 1908, and the hymn is entitled, If Jesus Goes With Me, I'll Go. Frank is probably the only person in the room who knows that hymn. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. Tis heaven to me where'er I may be. If he is there, I count it a privilege here, his cross to bear. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. What a beautiful promise. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Other people will. Jesus will not. Finally, point number four, recite. Recite his promises to yourself. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 6. And notice what we are to do with this promise. We are to confidently speak it. So we can confidently say, what this is, is a confession of faith that was probably used in their public liturgy. They'd get together and they would recite this. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I think it is something that you should memorize. I often mock and scoff at things which people put on their refrigerators, which they pull out of context. This is something that you should put on your refrigerator. Uh, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You should memorize it. And and notice the the demeanor that that we should should use as we recite it. it. It should be uttered with confidence. I think there's a difference between saying the Lord is my helper and, oh, The Lord is my helper. The book of Hebrews calls for a lot of confidence when it comes to believing in gospel truths. Chapter 3, verse 6, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 16, let us with confidence draw near. Chapter 10, verse 19, we have confidence to enter the most holy places. Chapter 10, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now with the same confidence with which we possess all of those gospel truths, we now, when it comes to temporary provision, can say with equal enthusiasm, the Lord is my helper. And it needs to be uttered with confidence or faith. Where is this provision going to come from? Well, it's going to come from the Lord. How is it going to come? That's where the fun comes in. I don't know the exact means that God is going to use to provide for his people. I know that when I guess as to how God is going to do it, I'm usually wrong, and I can tell you that in every instance, I have grossly underestimated what God delivers. Exceeding abundantly is that which he has provided. 
And so when I graduated from the University of Georgia in June of 1984, I had two job options. One of them, as I stated earlier, was to be the youth director of a church in suburban Atlanta. The other one was to sell fruitcakes. Can't make this stuff up. I had a friend who was about 10 years older than me. He was not a Christian, and he said to me, don't go to work for the church fast, Eddie, because Jesus ain't going to pay the rent. But I felt that the Lord was calling me into the ministry, so I took the job. And when I saw that I was not going to get a raise, I became covetous and greedy and angry. I can remember very distinctly driving down Peachtree Industrial Boulevard, and I was overcome with a deep sense of conviction by the Holy Spirit and a corresponding shame about my greedy attitude. And I had a moment of clarity, and I realized that it was a privilege to be in the ministry, and that actually I should be paying them and not the other way around. And I was convicted, and there were no cell phones at the time, so I could not call Anna, and so I needed to drive like Ed Moore, and I pulled in front of her, and I I, I motioned with my hand for her to pull over, and we pulled into the parking lot of a Shoney's, and I got out of the car, and I walked over to Anna's car, and I was weeping, so ashamed of myself, and I sat in the car with her, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, if you allow me to serve you, I will serve you for the rest of my life, and never again will I ever complain. And with great contentment, I enjoyed 1985. We got married I was making $16,000 a year. We were poor like you wouldn't believe, but we were happy. You can look at me and see that I didn't miss a meal. We were happy. We didn't have anything, but we were content. And times without number over the next several years when we continued to be poor and we struggled to get by, And usually at the last minute from unlikely sources, our needs would be met. My wife and I would look at one another and we'd say, you know what just happened? Jesus just paid the rent and he's paid it up till this day. You know, I'm an old man. The older I get, the more confidently I can read 13.6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear What can man do to me? Rhetorical question, nothing, because God is the one that protects me. Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Nobody. David was an old man, Psalm 37.25, and he says, I have been young and now I am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. It's just an observation on his part. God's people are taken care of. I'm with you there, David. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing. In closing, let me send you home with a little gospel to bolster the argument. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That is the gospel. Arguing from the greater to the lesser. Oh, my Uh, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if there is this God and and he loves us, it doesn't make any sense that this God would sacrifice his son for us for eternity and then turn it around and desert us in the here and now. 
No, he's with you for eternity and he is with you in this life. And so I encourage you to confidently affirm the Lord is my helper because brothers and sisters, he is, he is. Father in heaven, I pray for these dear people. Lord, I do pray that you'll provide for them because you've told us to pray and make our requests known to you. But Lord, more than providing for them, I just pray today that you will give them a confident assurance based upon the gospel that you will provide for them. And so Lord, I pray for the discouraged soul that's here today, that these gospel truths will cause them to leave this place resting confidently, remembering that you are with them and reciting with their lips, I will not fear, I will not fear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.